crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello and welcome to Watch Jerusalem. I'm your host, Brent Naktagal. I am here in Jerusalem, Israel today. And today I'm going to be talking about the aftermath of the war between Israel and the Iranian-backed Hamas terrorists that operate out of the Gaza Strip and that are slowly taking over much of the Palestinian cause. While the international media is going to be focused in the next few days talking about the ceasefire, whether, whether it's going to hold between Hamas and Israel, whether the rocket attacks will cease, whether Israel's response, of course, will be, will be muted, the real change has taken place on Israel's streets. And not just the streets, let's say, amongst the Palestinians in the West Bank or in the Gaza, but really in the, on the streets of, of Israel proper. Among the Palestinian Arabs, there are currently 1.2 million Arab citizens of Israel that live amongst the Jews, uh, that live in, up and down the coast in Jerusalem and elsewhere. These are Arab citizens of Israel that have now, it seems, decided to take up common cause with Hamas. Now, this is a scenario that Israel faces that they haven't uh, I would say in about 70 years, really, going back even till 1948, when even before Israel was a state. In the lead up to the independence of Israel, you did have the Haganah, the Israel Defense Forces and other, other forces that were fighting against the Arab street inside all these territories, everywhere from sea to sea, where the Arabs were raised up in uh, trying to rid this nation, this whole area before it was a state, of the Jews themselves. And ever since that time, you have had Israeli Arabs uh, from 48 onwards, in particular in Six Day War and 67 onwards, that have largely retained their, um, let's say, or at least stayed out of the fight, out of the intifadas against Israel. It's been left to those from the West Bank and, of course, those from the Gaza Strip, particularly the two groups uh, from the uh, through the early 90s and onwards, being Fatah and, and Hamas. Fatah, of course, has ruled over the Palestinian Authority for decades, but Hamas, Hamas is the, the one that is sponsored by the Iranians and other Iranian-allied countries. Hamas is the more dangerous of the two. Hamas is the, the group that... Uh, that that has a belief that Israel doesn't have a right to exist anywhere, anywhere inside their native homeland. This means river to sea, no Jews, that's it, we're done with them. That's what Hamas wants. Now, Hamas's position has now become more mainstream through the course of this 11-day conflict and in its aftermath. Now, most international observers and media will be focused on Israel's disproportionate response to Hamas firing uh, on its civilians. However, the big story here is not that. The big story is Hamas's war against Fatah to govern the Palestinians and Hamas's ability to motivate the 1.2 million Israeli Arabs to their cause. And this is what has happened. 
Now, this is not something that I'm making up, of course. I've got numerous, I've got numerous sources here from Israel to discuss this, English-speaking uh, English sources from Israel to discuss this with you today. I'm going to be quoting from them. But we can just see that this is taking place. It's, it's very obvious. Just last night, on Sunday, you have heard, obviously, about Israel apparently storming, Israeli police storming the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Temple Mount area, and how that was a pretext for the Hamas's rockets to be fired uh, into Israel. However, last night, there was, there was not Israeli police that were on the Temple Mount, yet there was fighting. Yet who, who, who was fighting? It was Hamas versus Fatah, supporters of Hamas versus supporters of Fatah. Now, this comes after uh, Friday, something really, uh, really unprecedented happened on Friday. And this is reported by Khaled uh, Abu Tomer. He wrote this on Friday. He said, in an unprecedented move, Muslim worshippers expelled Palestinian Mufti of Jerusalem, Sheikh Mohammed Hussein, from Al-Aqsa Mosque and prevented him from completing his sermon. Now, so this was Friday, third holiest site in Islam, and you have the Palestinian Authority, Fatah-affiliated uh, um, imam there, or the sheikh, and he's giving his message, and he's shouted down by people inside Al-Aqsa. And what were they saying? They, they said, quote, Go away, go away, we don't want to see the dogs of the Palestinian Authority, meaning Fatah. They also chanted, and chanted, "We are the men of Muhammadiyah," and of course, this was this man is the leader of Hamas's military brigade that apparently worked out all the rockets to attack Israel and such. Who's the one that gave the ultimatums to the state of Israel, both on um, on May fifth and then on again May tenth, that said that Israel, if you don't get out of uh, the Haram or Al Aqsa, the Temple Mount. Israel, if you do not stop the evictions of Palestinian squatters inside Jewish homes, he didn't put it in that way, in Sheikh Jarrah, then we're going to rain rockets on you. And they did. That's Muhammad Deif. And because of his strong support for the Palestinian street, and particularly those, those Arabs in East Jerusalem, Israeli Arabs have decided to rise up in support of Hamas to the point that the man that's giving a sermon in Al-Aqsa, again, the third holiest site of Islam, he's shouted down, he has to get whisked away by security, not from to, to, to protect him from Israel, because that wouldn't happen. This was to protect him from Hamas supporters on the Temple Mount inside Jerusalem. Now, this is a fundamental and dangerous shift that is taking place on the streets of Israel. It is a change that sees the Arab Israelis being mobilized or attempted to be mobilized by Hamas to support their goal. And their goal is not about two states. Their goal is not about 1967 borders, two states for two peoples. Hamas's goal is river to sea, Jordan to Mediterranean, this land rid of all Jews. And up until this point, again, the Israeli Arabs have maintained their place on the sidelines, but not anymore. And we have an article about part of this. This was published last Tuesday. Iran is taking over the Palestinian street, noting this big change. And you have several Israeli commentators that have been talking about this. This was back last week, earlier last week. 
Times of Israel had a headline in Rocket War for Al-Aqsa, Hamas has already won the Palestinian leadership. Jerusalem Post headline, May 17th, Israel is winning battles, Hamas is winning the war. And then you had others, uh, as we quote uh, on here, uh, in this inside this article, showcasing that in the middle of these rocket attacks against the state of Israel, that was not where the main, for- main fight was being waged by Hamas. Remember, Hamas is the one that issued the ultimatum to Israel, an ultimatum that they could not succeed in. They gave him one hour to do so. And neither is Israel going to decide to uh, hold evictions, or at least it seems that way, um, of people that haven't paid rent in 40 years inside, you know, this is a simple court case in Sheikh Jarrah. And they're not going to allow Palestinian protesters to start throwing rocks and Molotov cocktails at, at police and then not come onto the Al-Aqsa compound. The morning of May 10th, the Arabs were already set up. Hamas-affiliated Arabs were already set up on the Temple Mount to provoke Israel to storm, Israeli police to storm the the, the Al-Aqsa compound in, in protection of themselves. That was already the way that they were going to paint this. So remember, Hamas is the one that started this. Hamas wanted a war. Hamas also wanted a ceasefire because their goals were attained and their goals had nothing to do with uh, let's say, you know, trying to defeat the Israelis in an open conflict, in a rocket war. They knew that was not going to happen. What did they have to do? All they had to do was enough to show the Palestinian street that they are the ones that are willing to put their blood on the line to not just defend Al-Aqsa Mosque, as they would see it, but also defend the, the Arab Israelis, those live, many Arab Israelis that live in East Jerusalem and the Arab Israelis throughout Israel proper. And that's why, correspondingly, inside this 11 days of fighting, you had the return of Jewish pogroms, these return of, of Arab marauding groups hunting Jews through the state of Israel, burning synagogues, lynching Jews. Why did that happen? Why, did they, why, were, they, why were they covered in Hamas flags in central Israel? When they were doing this, because Hamas had showed that they are willing to stand up for the Israeli Arabs as they would see it. And the Israeli Arab street responded and they started to join Hamas's fight for the eradication of Israel. Hamas wanted this war because Fatah and Mahmoud Abbas said that there would be no Palestinian election. And they, of course, Fatah blamed Israel for that. Hamas saw through that. They saw the Palestinian elections as one route for it to take power over the West Bank, over the Palestinian cause. And since Fatah decided to cancel those elections, Hamas reached out for Plan B, provoking a war with Israel in the context of defending Al-Aqsa and the Palestinian Arabs. And that war attained what Mahmoud Abbas uh, tried to stop a Palestinian ta- a West, a Hamas uh, takeover of the Palestinian Authority. Instead, now we have Hamas de facto rule over the Palestinians, not just in the West Bank, not just in Gaza, but more importantly, inside Israel proper as well. And Hamas knows this. This was Hamas's goal. Hamas is recognized and Iran recognizes that they now hold sway over the, the uh, Israeli Arabs. Of course, not all Israeli Arabs. There's plenty of Israeli Arabs. I would say the majority of Israeli Arabs want to live inside an Israeli state. They want to live side by side. 
uh, with the Jews. But I would say there is a growing proportion, Hamas realizes, that is firmly on the side of raising up a war, an internal war, a civil war in Israel to get what it wants. Now, this is what Ismail Haniyeh, he is the head of Hamas, said from, from Qatar, from Doha in Qatar. This is obviously a state that is aligned with Iran's, led by the Muslim Brotherhood. Muslim Brotherhood's the mother of, of Hamas. Hamas gets its funding from Qatar and also its weapons and funding from the Iranians. They're all in it together, even though one's Sunni and one's Shiite. does not matter. They both have come together for the dual purpose or the single purpose of the eradication of the Jews. This is what he said on May 15th. Today, the geographic barriers within historic Palestine have been removed. Today, Palestine is waging an intifada from Russia Nikra to Um Harahash. That's in Elata, I guess. Um, yes, they have thought that 70 years or more could kill the spirit of belonging of our people within the land occupied in 1948. They thought that our people there... The Israeli Arabs would lose their identity identity and assimilate in the Zionist identity. They thought they would forget their identity and sense of belonging. But today, our people within the 1948 borders are the ones defending Al-Aqsa Mosque. They are the ones waging an intifada against the occupier and the settlers. The theory of coexistence between two peoples within the 1948 borders, the theory they have been cultivating for 70 years, is being trampled underfoot by our sons and our people. That's what he said. Again, Hamas, Iran... They recognize that a massive change has taken place, has taken place with the Palestinians, well, the Arab Israelis, let's say, the citizens of Israel. There has been a change, and this shows that Hamas, this shows the reason for the ceasefire. They had already attained what they needed to attain from this war, domination over the Arab cause, of the Palestinian cause. And that's why they stopped firing rockets. That's why they decided to get a ceasefire with Israel. This war was fought on Hamas's terms, and it was ended on Hamas's terms also. And this is, again, a very serious change. Israel can defend itself quite easily, as we saw in this war, against rocket attacks from the Gaza Strip. They could defend themselves also from rocket and missile attacks from Hezbollah. Of course, Hezbollah has a far larger cache of weapons far more precise, larger, can go further. Yet, it wouldn't be an, an existential threat, uh, a Hezbollah-led war, even a dual-front war against Israel. But the, the more dangerous thing has taken place, and that is a civil war. The, the, the brewing of a, of a civil war inside Israel amongst Israeli civilians, Palestinian Israelis, Arab Israelis, that the, 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 the atmosphere for a civil war is something that is not, Israel is not ready to face, that Israel does not have a solution for. Now, in response to the rioting that took place within this 11-day window, there have been, I think, 1,500 arrests. 10% of those were Jews that were arrested for secondary, retaliatory um, uh, fighting against Arabs. That did happen. But a good 90% of them, people that were arrested, were Israeli Arabs that were marauding through the cities of Israel uh, and trying to hunt Jews, if you can believe that, in the state of Israel. 
And so, again, we do see this, this very dangerous situation uh, that is coming to the surface, and Hamas recognizes that they were successful in this war. Yes, they did, I guess, take a beatdown inside the Gaza Strip, but this was not about what would happen within the Gaza Strip. This war was waged, again, for the hearts and minds of the Arab Israelis, and it seems like they achieved that. And it was, of course, for the hearts and minds of more Palestinians to, again, show Fatah as a useless power in terms of its, its strength uh, against the state of Israel. This is what Eric Mandel wrote this week. Is this the start of Israel's first Jewish-Arab civil war? This is really important, again, this article. And I've got a number of sources, Carolyn Glick's article here later on to discuss with you as well. I just want to quote this so you can really see what's going on uh, and what happened within this within this war. The current Gaza war between Israel and Hamas may not differ from the three previous military actions, 2008, 2012, 2014, between Israel and the the terrorists in Gaza. Israel will not risk the lives of its soldiers or innocent civilians embedded within Hamas's military assets in an attempt to replace Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad and then having uh, having to take charge of civil services for the Gazan people. It will now mow the grass. Well, it will mow the grass and hopefully buy a few years of deterrence. What is different about this war is that the Palestinian Arab Strip Street in the West Bank and the Palestinian citizens of Israel are openly cheering on Hamas. Hamas told the Palestinian citizens of Israel to rise up against our enemy and yours. And a not-too-insignificant number of Arab-Israeli citizens responded by lynching Jews, burning synagogues, and fomenting pogroms. This is of existential importance, especially when 21% of your population empathizes with an enemy who wants to end your existence. That's what happened. You have 21% of the state of Israel are Arab-Israelis, and many of those march to the beat of Hamas now. Again, this is a very dangerous situation. He ends his piece this way, the Middle East again. This is Eric Mandel writing for the Jerusalem Post. The Middle East is in flux and Israel may be facing one of the most critical tipping points in its history. Again, I was talking to people at the park yesterday and they said to me, oh, aren't you glad that, you know, the war is over? How did you handle it? And I was thinking the war is, is, the war is only beginning. The, the, what, what we just saw was nothing compared to what could happen when Hamas wants it to happen, when the Iranians want it to happen. On Israel's streets, this war would be fought. This won't be fought fought by the Iron Dome system. This war will be fought on Israel's streets. And I think the Israeli security services know that. That's why they went around arresting as many people as they could. As many people that they saw that were responding to Hamas's call how Israel deals with its Arab minority over the coming years may rival in importance the threat of 150,000 Hezbollah missiles and the Iran nuclear weapons capabilities. He's exactly right there. Here we are talking about and Israel can be aligned on the need to stop Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. But is Israel aligned on what to do with 22% of its population, of which a growing number support Hamas's desire and goal? And the goal of the Iranians to remove Israel, all Jews, from river to the sea. 
This is what Carolyn Glick uh, said in her article, Facing the Real Cause of the Long Arab War. It's a really interesting piece. She's talking about what led to the decision to try and, uh, in the aftermath of the Six-Day War, to try and go back to the 1967 borders. That there would be two states for two peoples and how that would culminate in on the Oslo Accords. But she says that last week, because of this fighting, that is no longer the desired goal, or at least this is no longer the stated desired goal, meaning that it was never really the goal. It was just a stepping stone for the eradication of the Jewish state, this whole two peoples for, or two lands for two peoples living side by side. She says this, quote, the dominant, indeed leading role the Arab Israelis are playing in the current round of the Palestinian war against Israel puts paid the notion that the Palestinian war on the Jews has something to do with specific territories that Israel controls. Arab Israelis are not burning synagogues, schools, yeshivot, Jewish-owned stores, cars, and homes because of the so-called occupation. They're not lynching Jews that fall in their paths because of the so-called settlements. They are assaulting the citizens and institutions and symbols of the Jewish state because they seek to destroy the Jewish state. Timing is everything in war and in life, and the Arab Israelis and Palestinians clearly believe that the time is ripe for them to discard this nonsense about the occupation. Again, you'll hear the West talk about the occupation, and you'll hear Hania talk about, the leader of Hamas talk about the occupation, but the West might be talking about at this point Israelis that live in settlements or Israelis that live in East Jerusalem. That's what they're talking about when they talk about the occupation. No longer Hamas, no longer many of the Arab Israelis, when they say occupation right now, they're referring to all of Israel. 1949 borders, 1967 borders, doesn't matter. They're going back to all of it belongs to us. Every Jew is now a settler. Every single one. That's Hamas's position. And there are many Israeli, Arab Israelis that are joining up, that are joining up. Uh, to that cause, she continues, she writes later on, the Palestinian war, again, this is Carolyn Glick, the Palestinian war now joined by our Israeli Arabs and supported by the ruling party in America, the Democrats, remember, we'll get to that in a second, presents Zionism with its supreme test. Will Israel protect its Jewish national identity or will it crumble under pressure? Again, ceasefire was enacted the same day ceasefire enacted was enacted. There were riots on the Temple Mount. There were riots in Sheikh Jarrah. The war hadn't ended. The war hasn't ended. The rockets have stopped, but the battle has only really just begun. Israel must do two things to preserve, to persevere, sorry, she writes. First, it must quell the Arab-Israeli violence and confiscate all illegal weapons now in the hands of the Arabs. Over the past two decades, reports of thefts from IDF bases of everything from small arms to automatic rifles to shoulder-launched missiles have surfaced with some regularity. Nearly all of the theft was the work of Arab Israelis, and few and far between have there been the instances where stolen weapons were located and returned to the army. Israel's security forces must use all necessary force to locate and seize those weapons. The Arab pogromists marauding through mixed Jewish-Arab towns, lynching Jews and torching their synagogues and their property, prove incontrovertibly that so long as huge caches of illegal weapons remain in the hands of Arab Israelis, Israel's future is imperiled. So look, look at the extreme lengths that she's talking about here. 
And it shows you that she seems seems to think it's extremely significant what's going on. That we are on the border, on, on, the, on the edge of a full-out intifada mobilized by not people that have to go through a checkpoint. Arab Israelis do not have to go through a checkpoint to get into Jerusalem. Arab Israelis do not have to go into a checkpoint to get to Tel Aviv or in Haifa or in Akko or anywhere else. Netanya, Herzliya. Arab Israelis live in those cities. There's no, what is Israel going to do? We saw we saw actually them try and figure out what they're going to do on the fly back on two two Sabbaths ago. When in the afternoon, busloads of Arab Israelis were coming into Jerusalem along Route 1, and they had to shut down Route, Route 1 for a couple of hours to search these buses, to see there's no weapons coming in. Now, there are, to most of the other entrances to Jerusalem, road, road checks, roadblocks. You have to go through. Everyone does has to go through to get into the city to see if you're bringing weapons or not. Now, are they going to do that in Route 1? Well, you could do that in Route 1, I suppose, to stop them getting from Jeru- to Jerusalem. But what about all the other Israeli cities now that are under threat? This, is, this security situation, I would say, is unprecedented for Israel. I mean, what stopped this, the, the effectiveness of the Palestinian assault during the Second Intifada in Jerusalem? What was it? It was the building of a massive wall through East Jerusalem. And which said that, you know, if you want to get from East Jerusalem into West, you have to pass through a security checkpoint. You can't just come over the hills anymore and bring with your weapons and your exploding devices. How does Israel do that? Israel cannot do that with the Israeli Arabs. There's too many of them. They're spread. They're interspersed among the populations of the Israeli Jews. Again, this is a very dangerous situation that Israel faces. And she says it's time right now to go down and hunt all these illegal weapons that are in the hands of Israeli Arabs. That's what Carolyn Glick says. This is another article, Dr. Chaim Shine from May 21st, Israel Hayom. And the quip, well, the, the, the article is entitled, Lod Riots Spell Unrest in Tel Aviv. He sees where this is going, where this could go. And just one quote here. He says towards the end, the settlers of Tel Aviv need to be reminded that Lod's Jewish residents are not settlers. These are good citizens who want to realize state sovereignty in their territory. Everyone should know that if we cannot live in absolute security in Lod, there will not be calm in Tel Aviv's upscale Ramat Aviv neighborhood, formerly Sheikh Munis, or Ramat Hashiron, formerly Abu Kishk. If Jewish, Jewish families fearing for their lives are forced to leave Lod, evacuations will, all, will also take place in Ramla, Jaffa, Haifa, among others. Ever since the 1967 Six-Day War, members of the left have tried to convince us that the struggle is over the 1967 borders. If only we'd give them the state next to us, the fighting would stop. The events of recent weeks have shown us that the struggle is over the 1948 lines, meaning the Jewish state's very existence. All of the state's citizens should be partners in this struggle. Again, to Hamas, every single Jewish boot on the ground here 
is a settler boot. Doesn't matter if you live in Tel Aviv. Doesn't matter if you live in Shiloh. Doesn't matter if you live anywhere in the in Judea and Samaria, or Jerusalem, or Lod, or Haifa or Tel Aviv. Israelis, Jewish Israelis, are all settlers, and that has always been the goal of Hamas, and now it's quickly becoming the goal of the uh, Arab Israelis also. Now we'll see how this and when this does break out. Again, it's it's all in Hamas's hands. It seems like there would be a delay of some sort because Hamas would like some more international pressure upon Israel to be placed upon Israel uh, in terms of these court cases that are going through Israel's courts right now related to the eviction of Palestinian families inside East Jerusalem. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, And perhaps also this is going to be aligned with what's going on in Vienna uh, right now was the United States works extremely hard to try and find a way to fund the Islamic Republic of Iran, again, the backer of Hamas. Hamas doesn't start this war. Hamas doesn't end this war, or with the ceasefire I'm talking about, without Iran signing off on it. The Ayatollah has come out and commented upon what's been happening right now in terms of the Palestinians standing up, the Israeli citizens, Israeli Arabs, I mean, standing up on behalf of the larger Palestinian cause as they would see it, the Arab cause, the Muslim cause. Again, if you want to read the Hamas charter, it's all there. It's all there about what they believe and what they stand for, their 1988 founding document when they broke off from the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. What did they say? In that, they were talking about, again, all all lands that Muslims have ever owned. They must be restored through jihad to Muslims. So the Ottomans were over this territory as they would see it. They're Islamic. It's our responsibility to remove the Jews from this land. That is their that is what their goal is. That's Iran's goal, of course, also. And perhaps they're going to wait until some type of deal is struck with the Americans uh, to try and get sanctions removed on the Islamic Republic so that they can fund more support for for Hamas and others in this long war against uh, Israel, the state of Israel. But perhaps at this time we can talk a little bit about what the United States has done to really uh, foment uh, this this war and uh, come together and join causes with the Iranians and with Hamas. There is this article posted by Barak Ravid uh, for Axios, I don't normally quote from him, but this time I will. This is 11 days, eight calls, and a ceasefire inside Biden's response to the Gaza crisis. Just one, a couple of quotes here, I guess. Um, Israel is just between a rock and a hard place right now. They understand that the United States government right now, no matter what Biden says, and no matter what Mr. Netanyahu says about phone calls with Joe, his good friend, He understands that Joe Biden is not leading this effort. He is definitely a party to it. Melanie Phillips calls him the useful idiot that's going along with what's happening. But everyone that is dominating the Biden administration's Israel-Palestinian process is an Obama uh, Obama file. They were there, and now they have elevated roles. Last week, during the 
again, I think we talked about this, but during uh, during the during the rocket attack, who does the Biden administration send over to negotiate between Israelis and the Palestinian Authority some try and some type of ceasefire? It's Hadi Emmer. And he is the former founding director of the Brookings Institute Doha Center. So let's get this straight. The very place where Hania is taking refuge right now, the leader of Hamas, taking refuge in Doha, which is in Qatar. And the leader of the, Pal- the Biden administration's current outreach to Israelis and Palestinians is the leader of the Brookings Institution's Doha Center from back in 2006, I think, to 2011. And after that, he worked for underneath um, uh, Indic, Martin Indic, uh, on the Palestinian file then. Now he's been raised in rank, and he's coming over here to tell Israelis and the Palestinians to get along. And yet, this man, as late as 2019, had wrote a piece, it was either in political or foreign policy, I think it was foreign policy, that called for the inclusion of Hamas in the peace process with Israel. And so who does Biden send over here? He sends over someone that was funded in part by the Qatari government, the very government that is also funding Hamas, to try and negotiate some type of settlement between Israel and the Palestinians, who has preached in the past that Hamas needs to be included in peace negotiations with Israel. That has lobbied for Israel to go ahead and have to negotiate with the Iranian-sponsored Hamas. He is, he is the ambassador for the Biden administration. Thank you very much, says Israel. You can see where this is going. But let's go back to this article from Barack Ravid. He writes, and this goes back to what happened on May 9th. Okay, this is the day before, the day before the rockets started flying. May 10th, 6 p.m., rockets are fired at Jerusalem. Now, the day prior... National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan called his Israeli counterpart Mia Ben Shabbat, while Direct Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman spoke to the Director General of the Israeli Foreign Minister Alon Ushvitz. Uh, uh, Sorry about that. This is what he writes: The Biden administration had three immediate demands of Israel. So this is before the rockets start. Jerusalem tension was increasing, and these were the demands of Israel: Stop the evictions in Shikharah. Lower tensions on the Temple Mount and cancel the annual Jerusalem Day flag parade, during which the Israeli nationalists celebrate the unification of Jerusalem. While Israeli officials briefed reporters at the time that Ben Shabbat had rejected Sullivan's requests, viewing them as rewards for terrorists, Netanyahu, in fact, complied on May 10th. They did. They delayed the Sheikh Jarrah pending uh, case at the Supreme Court, and they did... Uh, ban visitors of Jews to the Temple Mount. Only yesterday did they start up again and rerouted the flag parade so it wouldn't pass through the Muslim quarter. And yet, what I want you to draw attention to is the demands were put on Israel by the Biden administration. And if you look at those demands, these are the, the same demands that Hamas had before they decided that they were going to fire their rockets on Israel. So there were some, there's some pretty good overlap between what the Biden administration was asking for Israel to do and what Hamas was asking for Israel to do as well. Now, this comes after the May 7th declaration by Ned Price, a spokesperson for the uh, State Department, who came out and said, both sides need to lower tension. Israel, we don't agree with your evictions. 
of these Palestinian families from Sheikh Jarrah, Israel, how about some human dignity and some human rights? And the totality of all of, of human rights needs to be expressed here with these families disregarding Israeli law, basically saying that your Supreme Court Israel, according to the Biden administration, has no jurisdiction to act when it comes to Palestinians living in East Jerusalem, because according to us, that's their territory. That's their territory. And we are willing, we are willing to press you hard on this. And Hamas came through on May 10th with the big stick and said, well, okay, there's still pending evacuations or evictions of these people. And so what are we going to do? Well, we're going to rain rockets down on Israel. Of course, I'm not saying the United States, the United States declared war on Israel. However, they're seeking common cause with Hamas. Very similar, uh, very similar ultimatum was issued by the Biden administration that Hamas issued as well. This is what Carolyn Glick writes, May 19th, Biden's skin deep support for Israel. And I've read so many articles, it seems, over the past couple of days about how Biden, thankfully Biden is not Obama. Oh, thankfully Biden, you might have Obama's people, but at least he still loves Israel. And he may do that, I suppose, but it does not matter. It doesn't matter because he's not in charge of the policy on Israel. He might have some nice phone calls, but it's not changing the policy that Obama had for Israel. In fact, the policy that Obama had on Israel is actually getting stronger against Israel. is getting stronger and stronger. A couple months ago, we had a program entitled, Will the Biden Administration Force Israel to Negotiate with Hamas? Will they? Well, that's where it's going. And people need to understand that that is where it's going. If the United States is willing to sit across from the table from the Iranians and work out a way that they can get billions and billions of dollars to the Iranians, doesn't it make sense that they would also pressure Israel to sit across the table from the proxy of Iran as well, that being Hamas? Even though they're a terrorist state or terrorist uh, group that run a terrorist state in, in Gaza, they see no problem with it. The United States doesn't. And they want Israel to do it as well, just as they are. Now, Israel is going to be caught between a rock and a hard place here. They either preserve the, the, they preserve the Israeli-American relationship with the Biden administration, or they tell the Biden administration, no, we're not negotiating with terrorists. It's our policy not to do that. We're not negotiating with Hamas. We don't, I don't care if they, if they are the representative of the Palestinian people. We're not negotiating with them. What is Israel going to do? Now, biblical prophecy says that we are going to experience a very big break, a break that we've never seen before between the United States and Israel. And you can see the setting for that being, being worked out right now. In the, with the United States that's going to pressure Israel to negotiate with Hamas, that the United States is going to pressure Israel to stop exercising its sovereign right over legal disputes in East Jerusalem. That's not going away, and the United States is going to come down harder and harder and harder. Perhaps even there's been, there's been talk and attempts to try and stop the United States from being able to support the Israeli military. What, what if that happens? What if Israel can no longer access the, the anti-rocket uh, missiles, I guess you could call them, that the Iron Dome uses to shoot out Hamas's rockets from the air? What if the United States says at some point, we're not going to send them to you anymore? That, that, is, a like, that, is, a, that is a situation that is definitely plausible in the near future. 
So we are expecting a very strong break between the United States and Israel. And this will be pushed on Israel. And Israel is most likely going to decide that if this is existential for us, we aren't going to stop uh, exercising our jurisdiction over East Jerusalem. We are going to uh, make sure the Arab Israelis do not have weapons. And it's going to be seen it's going to be seen as the, by the United States and international media of Israel acting like an apartheid state. Now, up to this point, Israel and its Israeli Arabs, they have equal access, equal citizenship, equal religious freedoms, and equal rights. And when people have talked about the apartheid state that exists in Israel, they're mainly at this point talking about what Israel is doing to the West Bank and Gaza. However, as Israel decides and must, according to its existential threat that it faces from the Israeli Arabs, to crack down harder on them, oh, watch the calls from the United States that the, Isra- that the United States Biden administration is going to agree with the Human Rights Watch and Betzalem and say that Israel is an apartheid state. Or we're worried that Israel is going to get towards being an apartheid state. Watch them say that. And Israel is going to have to break off some of its relationship with the United States to preserve its own security, and it's going to be called by that same United States or blamed by the United States as being the reason for that breaking of this brotherhood as it's talked about in the book of Zechariah. Israel will be blamed for it. Israel will be blamed for it when really Israel isn't to blame for it. It's the Biden administration, the Obama administration, that will be to blame for it. Carolyn Glick writes, with U.S. funding, and sanctioned relief, not only did they realize that the U.S. had their back, Iran and Hamas gained the economic wherewithal to wage war. So too, Hamas was able to use America's abandonment of Israel, this is in the lead-up to the war, as a means to persuade Israeli Arabs that they could safely participate in pogroms against their Jewish neighbors and accept Hamas as their representative. And so she's saying it was the public support from the Biden administration for the Palestinians and Sheikh Jarrah and elsewhere, and also the statements coming out, lower tensions, everybody. We expect both sides to lower tensions in Jerusalem. Hamas took that, and the Palestinian Arabs took that as a sign that the United States is on our side here. We can act and have the support of the United States. And that is what has happened. This is Melanie Phillips now, her article. This was published by the Jewish News Syndicate. Uh, This was May 20th, the last overlooked but still active front of World War II. Melanie Phillips writes this, In the United States, President Joe Biden told Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu that America expects an immediate and significant de-escalation on the path to a ceasefire. This while the rockets from Gaza were still flying against Israel. The demand was as unconscionable as it would have been to tell the British to de-escalate during the Blitz. And yet that's what happened. That's exactly what happened. Biden told him to de-escalate. And within a day, there was a ceasefire. The heirs to the Nazis are still intent upon the, the same terrible aims. The difference now is that those fighting for civilization, she's continuing this comparison, Uh, with World War II, those fighting for civilization are being undermined by an enormous fifth column, meaning the, the media attacks on Israel continuing. And even the leader of the free world itself has become a useful idiot for the other side. That's what we're seeing now. 
through through the media and also the United States administration's attacks on Israel and the calls to de-escalate, even as Israel is being bombed. Stop, Israel. De-escalate what you're doing. Instead of recognizing good and evil, recognizing a side that is firing on civilians indiscriminately and a side that is doing all it can to prevent civilian casualties. That's what we have, and that's what the war was. Now, you do have plenty in Israel that were calling, plenty of leftists, I would say, that were calling on the state of Israel and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to listen to Biden. We can't jeopardize the American relationship. And they would say it was right that he de-escalated and had a ceasefire. Now, most Israelis do not agree that the ceasefire was warranted, understandably, um, because of what was happening uh, and the, the fact that the deterrence likely had not been deterrence from Hamas firing more rockets, had likely not been achieved. And yet again, this is not where the war was fought. This war was over leadership of the Palestinian people. This war was over Hamas taking leadership over the Palestinian Arabs, or the Israeli Arabs, I should say. And you had the Biden administration that was giving a free pass to Hamas and giving a free pass to to this uh, to this attempt for them to um, plead common cause with the Arabs in East Jerusalem as well. Now, where do we go from here? How soon will things get out of hand among the Israeli Arabs? Will the the Israel Defense Establishment Internal Security uh, Agency be successful at dearming the 1.2 million? Arab Israeli citizens. Now, again, I want to make sure that you realize I'm not saying that all the Arab Israelis are for Hamas. There's plenty that would like it to stay with the status quo. They recognize that what they have right now is far better than Gaza. And they know if the Iranian dominated Hamas group takes over the Palestinian Authority, then the West Bank will become Gaza. They know that the, the state that would exist here in place of the state of Israel, would be just like the other Arab states, probably the worst of them if it was ruled over Hamas. It would just be like Iran. And they don't want that just uh, just as so many of the citizens of Iran do not want the rule by the Ayatollah right now. But in this fight, in this fight when the United States has the back of the Ayatollah, when the, when the United States has the back of what Hamas is, is rooting for, is going for, in terms of what's happening in East Jerusalem, then there's a lot of power now that rests on Hamas's shoulders or behind Hamas to go and through in these goals. And the, the, those Israeli Arabs that would have feared uh, fighting against the, their Jewish neighbors, now they feel like they are empowered to do so and that they were at least they will at least receive moral support from the United States, justification for what's going on. Now, you, you can just look at the reporting. Look at the reporting that happened on the New York Times. I don't have these articles with me, but two articles I'd like to just mention from memory. One was an article that talked about how uh, the Israelis' defense forces uh, HQ, their military headquarters, where it was, how it's right nestled in between uh, civilian structures inside Tel Aviv or somewhere close to Tel Aviv. I can't, I can't really recall. 
Now, why would they put out that? They're putting out that because they are trying to, again, legitimize Hamas putting their military sites among civilians. Israel does it, you see. Hamas does it. Did that give Israel the right to fire on those buildings? Well, does it give Hamas the right to fire on Tel Aviv? Because ensconced in Tel Aviv is the IDF, some of the IDF's uh, buildings also. So that's one article that was pushed by the New York Times. The second one, though, was the front page yesterday goes through the stories of five or six Palestinian Arabs or Arabs living in East Jerusalem, some in the West Bank, uh, elsewhere, pleading the cause against Israeli occupation in those territories. Now, why are they doing that? I thought, I thought we could rejoice for a moment that this ceasefire, there was a ceasefire. There was a ceasefire. The, the fighting has stopped. But no, not for the New York Times. The fighting has just begun. This was just part of it. Now there is going to be an increased international narrative that supports the state, the oncoming state of Palestine. And while, uh, and you'll, you'll see the tenor of these, these, these uh, marches that are taking place through the United States right now, unsurprisingly. The, the Black Lives Matter movement has merged into the pro-Palestinian anti-Israeli movement. And both are giving freedom to march. Uh, and, and attack Jews even through numerous American cities. Now, watch the tenor of those marches really blow the cover off how this, this notion that anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism, that anti, anti-Jewish state is not anti-Jew. The chants that they're saying in these marches are horrific. They're anti-Semite. And they are, the people chanting there, they're river to, river to the sea, Palestine be free. And that means no Israeli state. That is where they're going. That is what Hamas's negotiating position will be. That's what we want. We want no Jewish state. But, as the United States will, will come on and say, they're willing to accept the 1967 borders if you come to the negotiating table. And the United States will say, if you look to the international community, we're on the side of Hamas in this. The Pal- we're on the side of the Palestinians. And so as the representative of the Palestinian people, we have to respect democracy. So we have to respect the right of the Palestinian people to elect their leaders, which in this case, there's been no election, but the street has spoken and it's Hamas. So in democracies, don't we champion democracies? Well, we need to let their voice be heard. They are the representative of the Palestinian people, and so we're going to let them be heard, just like the United States pleaded with uh, Mubarak in Egypt to step down back in the Arab Spring. Why? Because he was a strong man that ruled over his country with a iron fist, did not believe in human rights. However, he knew that if he goes, the Muslim Brotherhood will be voted into power. And it was. And what did you have? Day one. Chants about destroying Jerusalem, marching to Jerusalem. They were the chants of the Muslim Brotherhood, Muhammad Morsi there. And that was the democratic will of the Egyptian people. And the democratic will of the Palestinian people is going to be for a Hamas-ruled government. A Hamas that does not want to live side by side with the Jewish state. And the United States is going to push for Israel to negotiate with them. Something that if Israel cares about their survival... 
um, they cannot allow, they cannot do. Now, again, we look at these, look at all of this through the context of biblical prophecy, and there's two real prophecies that are taking place now. One I've already mentioned. It is the fact that we are leading to the Zechariah 11, verse 14, breaking of the brotherhood between the United States and Israel. That is coming to the forefront right now. Your Bible says it is going to happen. The second one is a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 1 and 2. And it's about the fact that half of Jerusalem is going to fall to the Arabs. That is going to happen. And it is a precursor to the events that lead to the coming of the Messiah. So there is some good news, I suppose. Well, it is definitely good news in, in, all of, in all of what we're seeing, is that God is going to make himself known at the end of these events, and that they will culminate in the Messiah's coming, which will forcefully put down all violence. He will forcefully put down all violence for a thousand years on this earth. And that is something to rejoice over. That Palestinian Jew doesn't matter. Syrian, Syrian refugee flooding into Europe doesn't matter. Syrian fighting against the Assad regime doesn't matter. Iranian that's fighting against the, uh, that wants to fight against uh, the rule of the mullahs, that doesn't matter. All peoples all across the world are going to experience that peace for a thousand years based on the return of the Messiah that culminates the events that we're seeing in Jerusalem take place right now. So these are prophecies that we are going to watch take place. What's happening in East Jerusalem is extremely significant right now as the United States has given statements that it believes that the Jews do not have right to exercise their sovereign uh, or exercise the court's sovereign right to remove non-paying Arab citizens from Jewish houses across on the other side of the Green Line. This is in Sheikh Jarrah, but it's also in other neighborhoods. The United States is already targeting the neighborhood of Silwan, right where the ancient city of David is. Here is the place... And talking about Sil 1, there's a court case that is before the Supreme Court right now that the Attorney General Mandelblit has been asked to rule on, or at least give an opinion on, and that opinion is due in the next couple of weeks to the Supreme Court. And then they're meant to act on this, whether to evict the Sumeran, Sumerian family in the neighborhood of Sil 1. And the U.S. has already said they don't want you to do that, Israel. Now, here we have, this isn't Sheikh Jarrah anymore. Jewish, this goes back to about 300 BC, I suppose, BCE, the, the place where you had uh, Shimon HaTzadik uh, buried. Here you have the city of David that this Sumerian family has a house on that they lived in for past decades that the Israeli court has to decide on. Here you have the city of David, and right beneath the Sumerian house is the palace of King David himself. King David, a Jew the leader of the Jewish dynasty, if we could call it that, that ruled over all Israel from 3,000 years ago, over united Israel. We have remnants from his very palace sitting underneath this house. And the United States is saying, in that spot, that should be a world heritage area, in that spot, you cannot remove illegal squatters from, from, from their house because they are Arabs, they are in East Jerusalem, that is theirs. That's what it comes down to. Can you see what's happening here? If Israel can't live, if the Jewish people cannot live in the city of David, in the ancient city of David, and exercise its sovereign rights over that territory, 
where 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 are these events leading what is next what is next and so this isn't something that's going to go away in the near future and so to ground yourself in the biblical prophecies that are about to take place in Israel you need to read uh, Gerald Flurry's book Jerusalem in Prophecy he's the editor in chief of Watch Jerusalem he hosts the Key of David program uh, that we've played on Watch Jerusalem also he also writes a personal for every Watch Jerusalem magazine uh, that that comes out bi-monthly. And he has written a book, Jerusalem in Prophecy, and he brings together these prophecies from the Tanakh, from the Bible, and shows how they do apply to the times we're living in right now. And it is going to guide you to show what the future holds as well as we lead into that event um, of the Messiah's coming to this earth, as, as that book puts it, all of that in context. That's all we have time for today. We are out of time. Thank you very much for listening into the program. If you want to send some feedback, please do write your emails to letters at watchjerusalem.co.il. I will get those emails and endeavor to return or respond to you. Thanks again for listening and take care this week.